Hi, this is Mo. And this is Sarah, and you're listening to the podcast Bird Shit. We started this podcast to share our love of birding with other enthusiastic birders in the world. Welcome to another episode of Bird Shit Podcast. I'm here, your host Sarah, and I'm here with Mo, your other host who does this thing with me. And we are going to be talking about birds and who they're named after today. It's pretty much right, right Mo? Pretty much right. You nailed it. This actually came to us as a suggestion from Instagram. So we are listening to your feedback because we are good patrons of the internet. We appreciate all the feedback that you have given us. And to show how much we enjoy feedback, we're doing something about it. Yeah. So today we're talking about birds named after people. And now those birds have people named like birds. What? You know, bird people. But first, before we get into that, birds in the birds news, in the news, birds, birds in, in the, the news, news birds, 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 birds in the news. I wanted to give a shout out to my friend Nick, who periodically listens to our podcast when I tell him that we have a good episode, which is all the time, obviously. He shared this article with me about why parrots waste food, and it turns out we almost know the answer to why parrots waste food. Parrot owners are all too familiar with the way that their beloved parrots throw food, fling it against walls, and generally just waste any amount of food that is served to them. But now, thanks to a new study led by ornithologists at Universidad Miguel Hernandez in Spain, we've learned that this food-wasting behavior is found across a lot of different parrot species. The biologists tracked the parrots in the wild, watching their eating habits over several years. They also made observations in controlled settings. The end data included 103 species in 17 countries, comprising 30% of known parrot types. Shockingly, every single one of the studied parrot types wasted food, both in the wild and in controlled environments. In some instances, a single parrot was observed leaving behind 80% of the food it picked. That person has never eaten at my house, I'll tell you what. Also, yeah, I was going to say, you would never allow anyone to have leftovers. Yeah, if I had a parrot, I'd probably just be eating their leftover food. You would, all the time. I would. It'd be gross, but I would do it. Even birds that hadn't eaten in a while still picked apart their next meal and left some of it behind. The research exposed certain behavior patterns. So unripe fruits were more likely to be dropped than ripe ones, and parrots were more careful with food during breeding season, which makes sense because they were tending to hungry little baby chicks. As to why this behavior exists, though, the scientists still aren't totally certain. The behavior happens so regularly and so consistently, though, across these multiple species, that the researchers are pretty certain that the behavior is intentional. Parrots have been known to make what they call forward-thinking decisions. In other words, decisions that will impact the future and not just the present moment. Because as we know, parrots are smart as fuck, and they're really great birds. Yeah, right now, though, they just sound like picky fucking eaters, though. Yeah, they're like, I don't like this. This is bad. Yeah, they're like, no, I don't want to eat the unripe fruit. I want to eat the ripe fruit. Like, that's all it sounded like to me so far. Parrots are pretty basic. Dr. Esther Sebastian Gonzalez, one of the postdoctoral biology researchers working on the study, thinks that the birds are planning ahead in some way. So maybe they are pruning the trees of unripe fruit for better yields next year, or dropping the seeds to grow more trees, or something like that. They don't really know. Until we actually figure out what's going on, we're just over here hoping for an all-out parrot food fight because that might help us understand their behavior better. That is so interesting because you think about all the other bird species, you know, how they gobble everything up. And like when they say like you eat like a bird, 
that's not accurate at all because birds are very voracious and eat a ton of food, except for apparently the parrot. Well, it's even when you think about how to survive in the wild, your natural inclination is more to like eat food while you have access to it because you don't know when you might get your next meal. And instead the parrots are like, nah, I'm good, bro. I just want like 20% of what you've given me and I'll figure it out later. Yeah, that's really interesting. I hope it is as advanced as one of the doctors thinks where they're like pruning trees of unripe fruit or being like, oh, if I drop these next year, there will be two more trees. Like, I don't know if the parrots are doing exactly that. That seems a little bit much. This is like the equivalent of people who take the pits out of their avocado and try to grow avocado plants. That's pretty much it. Not very successful in my mind. No. And also, I'm pretty sure that 30% of humans don't do that with their avocados. Dang, that's insane. Yeah. So shout out to Nick for sharing that article. I'm glad that you know that I like birds. Thanks, Nick. So I have a sad one. Oh, shocking. I know, shocking. Sad bird news. This article comes to us from the New York Times, and it's based on an Audubon study that recently came out. As you know, each state has a lengthy list of things in nature they feel represent them. For instance, in Michigan, we have the white-tailed deer as our state mammal. They're pretty much everywhere. Makes sense. Petoskey as our state rock, and the robin as our state bird. However, according to a new study by the Audubon Society, several states may have to rethink their symbolic state bird. Using over 140 million observations recorded by birders and scientists, And comparing these to latest climate change models, this study examined how 604 bird species in North America will shift the regions where they live due to climate change. So, if you are one of the following states, you may be rethinking what your state bird is. In Georgia, the state bird is a brown thrasher who could lose up to 98% of its summer range in the state. Oh my god. New Hampshire's purple finch could lose 99% of its summer range in the state. The Minnesota common loon is estimated to lose 100% of its summer range in the state. Oh. The California quail, state bird of California, obviously, could lose 80% of its winter range in the state. I would actually love if that wasn't the state bird of California. <laughs> the California quail, the state bird of Nebraska. <laughs> Nebraska would do that, I feel like. They're like, we don't have anything else. We don't have a pro football team, so we cheer for college sports all the time. Yep. Uh, No one from Nebraska is going to listen to our sports podcast. And then two more states, New Jersey, whose state bird is a goldfinch, could lose 100% of its summer range. And finally, Pennsylvania, with the ruffed grouse, could lose 100% of its summer and winter range. If you live in one of these states, or even if you don't, and you just care about birds in your states or other states... Um, the Audubon has a wonderful, wonderful website where you can go to find out how to get involved in protecting species and limiting climate change. So we'll include this link to their climate action guide on our site. And yeah, that's a pretty bummer bird story. So why don't you finish it with something fun? Okay, well, something fun about birds. A step eagle named Min racked up some serious roaming charges for the scientist who attached a GPS collar to her. These eagles typically migrate to southern Russia or Kazakhstan, which is what the Russian researchers expected. But when Min took a 3,000-mile joyride to Iran, the researchers were hit with enormous roaming charges from her GPS tracker. Oh my god! I know, right? (laughs) Did Min get a booty call and then was just like, gotta go? Yeah, Min's like, peace. 
I'm needed in Iran. Don't ask questions. So here's the best part. Okay. Min was one of 13 birds tracked by Russia's Wild Animal Rehabilitation Center. The scientists were monitoring the migration route from Siberia to their southern winter retreat. In Min's case, she first flew to an area with no mobile signal for nearly four months. This meant a backlog in data that wasn't transmitting and then one massive pileup of text locators as soon as she got back in a cell network in Iran, a place where scientists were not expecting her to go at all. Researcher Elena Schneider said she sent us all at once hundreds of expensive SMSs with her summer locations, spending the entire collective phone budget for our eagles. <laughs> oh, the bill was said to be in the tens of thousands of ruples or about upwards of like maybe like 300 US dollars. It was enough to warrant the researchers posting a crowdfunding campaign to pay off the mobile bill. Don't worry, there's a silver lining. After hearing of the research team's bill, mobile phone operator Megaphone agreed to cancel the debt and put a project on a special cheaper tariff. Okay, like no phone company in the U.S. is going to do that. No, that phone company in the U.S. would be like, um, actually, we found that all your other eagles also went to off-grid locations, so. You owe us. Dude, that is so funny. Isn't that great? I think it just, there's something about the unexpected nature of birds and like, I mean, it's great that we're tracking birds to understand why they're doing this and where they go, because that just leads to more information around how climate change is affecting birds in ways that we probably don't have any idea yet or can even comprehend. So the fact that they were like, oh, yeah, these birds just fly from Siberia to Kazakhstan, like no big deal. And then like, oh, wait, this bird went to Iran first and we didn't know where she was for four months. And then all of a sudden she shows up on the grid and is like, Guys, check out all these sweet places I've been over the summer. It's kind of like the ultimate, like, you don't hear from your friend for a long time, and then suddenly their Instagram blows up with, like, all these amazing things that have happened in their life, and you're like, you know what? I didn't need that in my life. That's what I was thinking of, like, the friend who goes to study abroad in Europe and then comes back and just texts you about everything they did, and you're like, cool, great. I'm glad that this pizza we're eating at 2 a.m. isn't as good as the one you had in Rome. Yeah, exactly. Men, cut it out. Men, get your life together. Don't be that girl. And now we're going to talk about birds that are named after people. It's as simple as that. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty simple, but there are some very interesting stories. Talked a little bit about this with Andres when we interviewed him. It's like, yeah, there are lots of birds named after white people, especially white guys, because access to money and wealth and could get their name attached to stuff. So we did try to go out of our way to find some more unique bird naming stories while we do love john audubon we're not talking about him right here right now i do mention his name in one of mine but he's it's it's pretty funny all right baby stories that you haven't heard before baby stories that you have if you're really into obscure bird facts but either way we hope you enjoy learning about these birds and the people who name them so the first one we're going to start with is a pretty apparent one and it is the cooper's hawk The Cooper's Hawk was named after the naturalist William Cooper, who lived from 1798 to 1864. During this time in the U.S., many American species of birds were being formally named, and he was honored with the naming of this bird by a fellow colleague and ornithologist, Charles Lucinian Bonaparte, who we will talk about later. William was known for being one of the founders of the New York Academy of Science and the American Museum of Natural History. More interestingly, he was far more prominent in the field of science as a conchologist, 
as he studied mollusk shells. There was not a lot about him, but I wanted to include the Cooper's hawk because I think it's a really fascinating bird. It's bird of prey. I love birds of prey. But yeah, his Wikipedia is literally like two sentences. It's like, this guy was a naturalist. He studied shells. Bye. Also, this bird. Yeah, there's like so much about the Cooper's hawk. And I was like, well, maybe William Cooper wasn't that interesting. No one wants to write about him. But figured we'd start with a very simple, easy one. And that is who the Cooper's hawk is named after. Turns out that Alexander Wilson, who named a shit ton of birds, including Wilson's warbler, Wilson's snipe, Wilson's storm petrel, Wilson's phalarope, and the Wilson's plover, also happened to study mollusk shells. What the fuck? Why are mollusks? Like, it must have been. Think about the kind of things that people were into, though, in, like, the late 1700s. They were probably like, yep, yeah, I found this thing on the beach. You know, they just wanted to go to those fancy parties and be like, I'm a conchologist. I study shells and conchology. And also, maybe they just really liked oysters and they were, like, slurping them down. Yeah. Or was aphrodisiacs. Yeah, there you go. Just a bunch of horny white guys in England. Damn. Get me into that party. I know. Wow. We missed an opportunity. Oh, man. We could have been like the leading hose of ornithology. <laughs> or ornithology. <laughs> Ornithologist. <laughs> well, can't take that title away from us now. Nope. Claiming that. All right. Moving back to Alex here. So Alexander Wilson lived from 1766 to 1813, and he is commonly referred to as the father of American ornithology. However, he was born in Scotland and spent the first part of his life living there as a poet. After being arrested for writing a satirical poem about a local mill owner. What? <laughs> scandal. This guy needed a honethologist in his life if the best thing going on in his world was a local mill owner. Oh my god, and he got arrested for it. That mill owner must have had some, like, fucking push in that town where he was like, arrest this fucker. He wrote a poem about me. Poems are powerful pieces of media. <laughs> oh my god. Man, I'm going to start writing poems about people in my neighborhood and see how it goes. <laughs> Do you think you could write one for us now? No, I only know two people in my neighborhood and I like them, so I'm not going <laughs> to fuck it up. Well, wait till you have a neighbor that you don't like and then yeah. let you write a poem. Okay. So after he was arrested for this totally scandalous poem, he came to the USA in 1794. He worked as a schoolmaster in Pennsylvania while writing and illustrating all the known birds in the new nation. This work became the massive American Ornithology, which is in italics because it's a book. Probably can't read it because it's probably really big. Anyways, Wilson and this particular work, the American Ornithology book, were hugely influential, resulting in a number of species named in his honor. Oddly, one of these species, the Wilson's warbler, was discovered by Wilson in 1811, but he didn't name it for himself. What we now call the Wilson's warbler, which is a smaller yellow bird with kind of greenish wings and a little black cap of feathers on its head, kind of like a toupee, he originally described the bird as the green black-capped flycatcher. So he wasn't even right. I mean, it was definitely a warbler, but he called it a flycatcher, and he didn't even name it for himself. He was like, this is just what it is, and everyone's like, Actually, dude, we're going to name that bird after you because you discovered it. You just forgot. I am quite surprised by how well these articles are coming together because the conchologists link the first two. And now I'm going to actually mention the storm petrel in this one. Oh, dude, I realized that what <laughs> that guy wasn't even my conch guy. I totally did Wilson's warbler when I, I meant to do Swainson's thrush. <laughs> Oops. Oops. Oh, that's all right. 
Now let's go back for a second to this colleague I mentioned of Cooper's, Charles Lucenian Bonaparte. If that name sounds familiar, it's because he was the nephew of the famous emperor, Napoleon Bonaparte. Da, 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 da. While his uncle was busy conquering the world, Charles set out to conquer the world of birds. He was actually so eager to study that on his way to America, he identified and found a new species of bird, later known as the storm petrel. Oh. He became well-known within the United States and even championed for the then-unknown John Audubon to be accepted to the Academy of Natural Sciences. However, he was opposed by the well-known ornithologist George Ord, who disliked Audubon's dramatic bird poses and considered him to be a, quote, backcountry upstart who romanticized his subject matter. Oh, shit. A.K.A. he made those birds way too sexy and he didn't like it. Dude, he obviously needed a ornithologist in his life, too. God, these bird men. Also, that is like the most upper class insult. Oh, my God. Yeah. He's like, oh, no, you bet country upstart who romanticizes your subject matter because of all your dramatic bird poses. And I'm like, dude, you just like started realizing you think birds are sexy and you don't want to confront that problem. Can't help you with that. So Bonaparte would eventually return to Europe after studying birds in the U.S. and become Prince of Canano and Musinago after his father's death in 1840. While participating in the creation of the temporary Roman Republic and several other political and nature movements, he would never leave his love for birds. And he would begin to work on a catalog of every bird species known in the world, called the Conspectus Generum Avium. Though he died before the work was completed, it was a huge contribution to the world of birding. Bonaparte was extremely prolific and is responsible for coining Latin names for a large number of species. As of August 2019, in the online list of birds from the International Ornithological Committee, Bonaparte is credited as the authority for 165 genera, 203 species, and 262 subspecies. He also lives on through several birds named after him, including the Bonaparte's gull, Bonaparte's nightjar, Bonaparte's parrot, and the highland tinamou, also known as the Nothocercus bonaparti. So Napoleon's nephew was pretty cool. Yeah, he was way cooler than Napoleon. Yeah. But it's like, how could Napoleon Bonaparte be such a dick, and then how can his nephew be like, so, so cool, cool and contributing so much to society and at least bird society, but still. Yeah. It's almost like he was making up for his uncle's sins or something. I know. And he was so cool. And even though he did get involved in politics when his dad died and he had to become prince, he still was like, man, I'm still going to fucking work on this bird shit. Like, this is my true passion. Yeah. Being prince is boring. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> That's Napoleon. It's his nephew, Charles Lucinian Bonaparte. He's a pretty cool guy. As most people who follow us on Instagram probably know, my husband is not super into birds. Sorry, Sam. Love you, but you're not even going to listen to my podcast, so. (laughs) You're never going to hear this. You're never going to hear this. But lately, he's had a lot of crushes on thrushes. One of our... (laughs) I had to to work that (laughs) in. You had to do it. Yep. So one of the favorite birds that we've really learned to love is the Swainson's thrush, which is named after William John Swainson. This Englishman lived from 1789 to 1855 and was the second son of John Timothy Swainson, the second, who was an original fellow of the Linnaean Society of London, 
a learned society dedicated to the study and dissemination of information concerning natural history, evolution, and taxonomy. Wow, that was a run-on sentence. I apologize, listeners. Anyway, William Swainson wore a lot of hats. He was an ornithologist, a malacologist, a zoology branch dealing with the study of mollusks, a conchologist, the study of mollusk shells, there we go, an entomologist, which is the study of insects, and an artist. Damn. (laughs) I wish that I could just be that rich and uppity in society that I'm like, yeah, I do all of these things. None of them are my full-time career. Yeah, I think the problem is that, like, everything I'm good at is something that everybody else is already a part of, too. I could be like, I make a really good fried egg, and I can color inside the lines. Wow, Mo. I'm nominating you for best third grader. (laughs) (laughs) Yes! I didn't get that in third grade. I might as well take it now. In third grade, I got voted worst sixth grader, so... (laughs) lip gloss (laughs) i had like bad lip gloss and like i wore pajama pants instead of real jeans and like i had a lot of sixth grade problems (laughs) was that were you still pretending to be a cat then no i got over that when i was like eight oh okay good that's why you did not get voted best third grader that's for sure anyways tell me more about this guy all right william let's go back to william so, an impediment to his speech curtailed his formal education, and after a stint in the military and some health issues, William Swainson came back home to London to become a fellow in the Linnaean Society like his father. He traveled to Brazil to learn about a variety of creatures, but ended up settling down in New Zealand for the last decade or so of his life. While he was a pretty okay scientist who named a lot of different species, he didn't make a lot of friends in the science world. He was super critical of many others in his field, and as a result, many became critical of him later in his career. Regardless of your personal feelings about Swainson, of which I have none aside from what I've read, he is best remembered for his remarkable wildlife and species illustrations. Okay, this next part I actually found super intriguing. Swainson became the first illustrator and naturalist to use lithography, which is a relatively cheap means of reproduction and did not require an engraver. He sold his illustrations like a magazine subscription. So he would do a bunch of lithographs and then he'd like bind them together and release like serial editions of these print collections, which people would pay for on a regular cadence. So he was basically like printing small magazines of his illustrations about different species that people would pay for like a subscription model. That's so cool. That's smart. It's super smart. It was Swainson's early adoption of this cheap new printing technology and his natural skill as an illustrator that really led to his fame. The thrush isn't the only bird named after William Swainson. The Swainson's hawk, Swainson's warbler, and Swainson's toucan are also named for this naturalist. It should also be noted that while many species or subspecies retain his name, many of his own species were later discredited or merged with other names. Which is probably a good thing. He doesn't need that many birds. No, he doesn't need that many birds. But I think it's kind of weird. Like, it almost feels to me like he was running a pyramid scheme of bird lithographs. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty much sounds like a weird subscription package. Yeah, but like, what a smart guy. He's like, he figured out a way to make money illustrating animals and different species and birds and things like that. And ultimately, it provided a sustenance for him and allowed him to disseminate these illustrations that he was really good at making. I feel like that's also too like a lot of what the original like birding world was known for is like Audubon's drawings, 
Swainson's mm-hmm. illustrations. Like, art is a huge piece, I feel like, of the birding world. And you being art history major, I feel like that's a perfect one for you. Probably should have studied Swainson in school. Probably, but whatever. Studying them now. So the next person we have is our first female ornithologist, who was Florence Augusta Miriam Bailey, who was an American ornithologist who lived from 1863 to 1948. At the time Florence became interested in birds, most studies were based on examining collections and the skins of birds. However, she was much more interested in studying the behavior of living birds. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Skins of birds? Yeah. That's gross. Yeah, so basically at the time, if you wanted to study birds, you were studying collections of dead birds that people have collected and killed and cataloged. I guess I shouldn't be so shocked by that. There's just something about it that's, like, gross to me. Oh, yeah. Moving on. So she was a fierce advocate for birds, where in 1885 she wrote several newspaper articles against the fashion tradition of women wearing bird feathers on their hats. This movement would help give rise to the Audubon Society later on, so this attention to women wearing feathers in their hats. At the same time, while attending Smith College, she helped to form the Smith College Audubon Society as well. She continued her advocacy after college and helped to pass the Lacey Act of 1900, which prevented interstate trade in wildlife that had been illegally taken, transported, or sold, which at the time helped to deter illegal slaughter of many seabirds. This also led to further laws being enacted against the illegal transportation and killing of wildlife. So that was, like, really cool. Oh, yeah. What I think is one of the most biggest accomplishments and interesting accomplishments is she is considered to have published the first field guide to birds at the age of 26 called Birds Through an Opera Glass. So she's a woman, and she's the first person to have published a field guide to birds. And she's 26. Yeah, and she's 26, which is amazing. You know what I did at 26? I don't want to talk about it. Yeah, let's not talk about it. That's... I'm probably in a lot of those stories, so no go. No go. (laughs) She went on to publish several other birding guides, including the Handbook of Birds of the Western United States in 1902. This book would remain a standard reference in regional ornithology for at least 50 years. So she is amazing. She's also credited as the first woman to become a member of the American Ornithologist Union and the first woman to be elected as a fellow of this union. She received the prestigious Brewster's Medal, which is given by the American Ornithologist Union, to an author who has developed an exceptional body of work on Western Hemisphere birds. Bailey had one bird named after her, the mountain chickadee, now known as Bailey's chickadee. However, the bird was named formally Paris Gambelli Bailey, spelled B-A-L-E-Y-A-E, so not spelled like her name. Oh, son of a bitch. Yeah, even though it was intended to be named after her. However, the name actually really never caught on. It's still known as the Mountain Chickadee. So in the future, whenever we are referencing this bird, we will formally refer to it as the Bailey's Chickadee. Hell yeah, we will. That girl deserves it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. She's awesome. Yeah. I did not know a woman published the first birding, like, field guide. Yeah, that's so cool. It's amazing. It is so cool. Yeah, because the rest of them are more like, they're not field guides. They're just, this is a painting of this bird. And this is some info. Way to go, Florence. Yeah. So, American ornithologist Florence. I really like her, and I want to learn more about her. I feel like, is there a book about her? There should be. There has to be. There has to be. If not, I'm going to write it. I'm not 26, but I'll still write the first book about Florence Augusta Miriam Bailey. Please do. 
Okay, last bird from me. I know you got one more too. But this one I wanted to do because it was named after a lady named Sarah. Aww. This is the Lady Amherst pheasant, a stunning bird named for a badass botanist. Woo! The male Lady Amherst pheasant is a completely unmistakable bird. It has a red crest on its head. It's got this long striped tail, a white belly, and this black and white scaling on its neck. It's got a long gray tail that has like red and blue and dark green and yellow and white kind of on it. It looks a lot like a golden pheasant, if you've ever seen one of those, which I had not. I had to look up this bird, but all these like ground looking chicken birds are kind of the same to me in that they look like ground chicken birds, but this one is super striking. Their plumage is so pretty. Yeah. They got like that kind of like um, like shiny scaliness to them. Yeah, they're super cool. The species, like I said, looks like the golden pheasant, but it has a yellow eye and sort of blue-green bare skin around the eye. As such, it is worth noting that because they are ground-dwelling birds, they do prefer to run rather than fly because it's a pheasant. Okay, enough about the bird. Let's talk about Sarah Amherst. Sarah Countess Amherst was a British naturalist and botanist who lived in India. She identified several species which were named for her, including the Lady Amherst pheasant and a flowering tree as well. She was the wife of Sir William Pitt Amherst, who was the Governor General of India. Sarah and her husband lived in India. Obviously, he was the Governor General of India. And Sarah's husband, Lord Amherst, was responsible for sending the first specimen of this bird back to London in 1828. However, the bird did not survive the journey. Big surprise. Yeah, surprise. You can't just put a bird on a boat and expect it to live. But one of the leading ornithologists of the day later used the remains to officially describe the species and named it in the Countess's honor. So they did finally get the bird into England. The bird ended up making it to London and England is great. So after being released from the Woburn estate in the 1890s, the pheasants quickly established themselves in the ornamental rhododendron woods that flourish along Bedfordshire's Greensand Ridge. Unfortunately, recent populations of the pheasant have been seen predation by foxes and loss of habitat, and their numbers have been reduced from a peak count of 200 pairs to just one single male who was believed to be at least 25 years old back in 2015. Oh my God. While other birds that have been threatened with extinction in Britain have been able to make a comeback through successful reintroduction programs, the Lady Amherst pheasant didn't have the same luck. As of right now, the last sighting of the Lady Amherst pheasant was in March of 2015. This is partially because under the Wildlife and Countryside Act of Britain, non-native species cannot be released into the wild. As such, the Lady Amherst pheasant is now extirpated from Britain, but you can still see this magnificent bird in the wild in Asia. So they were like, we love this bird. Let's release it in our home. Yeah, I, I think what's crazy about the story is that you know, they, they found this bird that they really loved from Asia and they brought it with them back to London and they, it, it seemed to like be doing pretty well in England. Like it was a pheasant and it wasn't invasive. Like it obviously didn't thrive the way, you know, cane toads do in Australia or whatever, but they like were just around and like you could see them and stuff. And then it's thought that like hunters were killing them because they thought they interfered with fox hunts because they run on the ground. They don't fly. There was like some culling and different things. And basically it just ended up that like all of a sudden there's only one guy left and he's 25. He doesn't have anyone to mate with. Mm -hmm. And so because of this like probably pretty old law, they weren't able to reintroduce it. But it's kind of like, should you have reintroduced it? It wasn't meant to be there in the first place. It's kind of a weird situation, but I do think it's cool that like this bird 
is really beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I like to think that they did honor to this woman and being like, this is a beautiful bird. Let's name it after a woman who's also a scientist, which is kind of cool. It wasn't just like some woman who like wasn't contributing to society and just living off her husband's wealth. So cool story, sad story, but you can still see the bird if you're in Asia. You just can't see it in England anymore. Cool. So I'm going to live into our last one. And it does have to do with a bird being named after a person, but I just thought this story was really interesting. So I will eventually reveal what the bird is, but we're going to start with this woman who is named Teresa Rachel Clay. She was an English entomologist who lived from 1911 to 1995. She was introduced to zoology by her relative Richard Meinertzagen, who was an English entomologist. He had a very close and unusual relationship with Teresa. So basically, I think he was her uncle once removed, and yeah, they were probably banging. <laughs> they, they were like... <laughs> Just gonna slide yeah, that in there. Yeah, they were definitely having like weird relationships. Teresa, with the help of her uncle, would become an expert on the malafag, which is also known as chewing lice or bird lice, because he would collect... Ugh. Yeah, he would collect these bird species and then provide her with the lice found on the birds. Her work on lice species greatly contributed to research in this field. Additionally, like her uncle, she became involved in the war, and in early in World War II, she became a part of M15, which is England's security service, something in like James Bond-style M6, and she assisted in counter-sabotage efforts. What? Yeah. Her uncle is basically like making her a mini-him while also fucking her. It's so weird. While her work on life species, like I said, greatly contributed to the research, um, some of her work was called into question due to her association with her uncle, Richard Meizenhagen, who committed large-scale fraud in the world of ornithology. So in the 1990s, an analysis of his bird collection revealed species he claimed to have collected and discovered actually matched ones that were reported missing specimens from the Natural History Museum. So basically what he was doing is he would steal the species and then claim it for himself somewhere else. Basically, he was like stealing from the Natural History Museum and claiming that he had found these birds when actually they had been collected by other ornithologists. The craziest thing was basically the forest outlet was thought to have gone extinct and was rediscovered in 1997 based on where the original specimen was found. But because Merzenkarat had claimed he found it, he falsely claimed he found it in a different area. So no one was looking for the owl in that area. So they thought it had gone extinct because no one saw them in the area he claimed he had found the specimen in. When in reality, they went back and looked at the original paperwork that the specimen was associated with and rediscovered the species in 1997. Oh, my God. And then, also, he named the Afghan snowfinch the Piraguata Teresa after Teresa because he really liked having sex with his niece. You know, it really sucks that, like, she's the one who is shamed because her uncle did some shady shit. Oh, no, he definitely got shamed, too. Okay, good. They called her into question because she was, like, basically his everything. She was his, like, work partner, his secretary, and all this stuff. So they suspect that she definitely helped fabricate some of his, like, diaries where he claimed to have found species. Um, But her work on the bird lice was her own scientific work, or so they suppose. So, yeah. So that was one that involved a ton of shit going on, and I was like, we got to include this one. And, again, that's the Afghan snowfinch named after Teresa Rachel Clay. By her very fucking creepy uncle. First of all, how did you steal that stuff? Second of all, like, 
it's not even like you're getting to be super famous for any real reason, really. Like, you claim that you found some species, but discovering species is like a weird, I don't know. I view it as like a kind of thing that people don't do for fame. They do it for love to discover something and be like, oh my God, I'm so excited that like I found this. Like, it's so rewarding to me as an individual. And he was clearly trying to do it to like make a name for himself, which is so wrong. He also was in the army for Britain and was like known for his like tactics and everything. But apparently a lot of that came out that it was lies that he told on the battlefield and stuff. Like, yeah, he sucked. But I was like, well, this is technically named after a woman and it's a bird. Let's throw this story in here because it is juicy. That is a juicy story. That would be on the cover. It's when your lover uncle turns on you and turns out he's a fraud. Lover uncle turns on you. But he named a bird after you, so there's that. (laughs) I want want it to be like a PSA. What do you do when your lover uncle turns on you? (laughs) Call this number. Take your lice and run. So I had an extra thing I wanted to plug when I was looking around. I found this. I don't know if you've heard of this person. Phoebe Snetsinger. So I, she doesn't have a bird named after her, but she was an American birder, famous to ha- having seen and documented more than 8,398 different species of birds. What? Yeah. So her memoir, Birding on Borrow Time, explores her achievement as she was diagnosed with cancer and decided to really get into birding. So when she was diagnosed with cancer, she went all over the world to see birds. Well, how long ago was this? Her book came out in 1999, I think. Oh, okay, cool. So fairly recent. It's not super old. But yeah, she was diagnosed with melanoma. Actually, her book was published posthumously. So she died and then her book was published in 2003 by the American Birding Association. But it's called Birding on Borrowed Time. Um, I figured if anyone has a book club and they want to read something about birds, I think this would be a really interesting book. On that same note, if you like this episode, there is a book called Who's Bird? That's W-H-O-S-E Bird by Bo Bolins and Michael Watkins that talks a lot about different birds and the people that they're named after. So it's a cool little eponym dictionary of different birds if you wanted to learn a little bit more about the names of birds and how they got them. Uh, kind of, I mean, I, don't, I think you and I were both really had a lot of fun researching this episode because... Yes, there's a lot more common names out there like we talked about, but there are also these really sort of obscure stories that get uncovered when you start learning more about the people in the sciences and how they made these discoveries and now it's kind of their legacy in a way. So check out those two books. They would be great reads if you're looking for some bird books to read as winter comes up and you don't want to watch Netflix all the time. You might as well pick up a book and read it. That's our episodes on people who name birds and the people they're named after. Take it or leave it, but it looks like you took it because you made it this far. Yay, if you're still listening, you made it through. We are always looking for ideas for different things that people want to hear on the podcast. So if you have an idea you want us to talk about, we promise not to shit all over it. You can reach out to us at hellobirdshit at gmail.com. Send us a message on Instagram. Yeah, please slide into our DMs. Please just slide into our DMs with anything. Pictures of birds, pictures of birds wearing pants, whatever you want. Yeah, no cocks. Unless it's a chicken, because <laughs> that's a bird. Get it? I made a joke. Yeah, you are, you are running with the jokes tonight. It's really good. 
Running with the jumps tonight. Uh, anyways, we're on Instagram, as Sarah just alluded to. Don't send us dick pics, but you can reach out to us at Birdship Podcasts. And until next time, keep your eyes to the skies. Boo! Dude, I just downed half of like a big gulp. Dude, I also heard you get like really astonished that someone was eating toast at 640. <laughs> well, it's because we don't. Here's why Here's why toast is astonishing in my household. We don't have a toaster. <laughs> So whenever we cook toast, we literally just put pieces of bread on top of the, the burner on the stove. And so every time you make toast, it just smells like the house is on fire. Why don't you invest in a toaster? You know, I don't like clutter. And... Dude, I know keeping a toaster out on the countertop drives me crazy. Are you being sarcastic? No! No, it fucking sucks yeah. because, like, you literally only use a toaster for one thing, and yeah. that's making toast. Yeah, and then you have to have the toaster on the countertop. And I tried yep. to put it in a cupboard, and Jake was like, who the fuck puts a toaster in the cupboard? And I was like, me. I did when I had one, and then I was like, I don't need toast that much. And so then I got rid of it, and then it turns out I like toast. And so now I have to cook it on top of the stove. And don't people, I know that toaster ovens exist. I don't want to hear your crap about toaster ovens because I think that those are almost more annoying to me than toasters. Yeah, because it's like, why don't you just have a toaster or an oven? Why is this combined thing here? Because then you just need an oven. Like, all you can really make in toaster ovens are hot pockets. I was going to say bagel pizza. But either way, (laughs) I was like, that's a bad argument because I like both those things. Ew, you like hot pockets? I don't know why I said ew, because in my mind, a hot pocket sounds really good. I know. (laughs) I just realized that I'm maybe just being like... A little bit of a philistine, and I actually do like those things. And maybe I need a toaster oven so I can eat them bagel, more. Yeah, bagel pizza is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Fuck. All right. Anyway, that's toast in my that's, house. That's toast.